Hey, this is Matt Markin, and welcome to episode 70 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In this jam-packed episode, we're doing a panel-style interview with Dr. Leah Frierson, Nicole Kent, Dr. Tara Stoffel-Warden, and Dr. Kevin Thomas with guest host Dr. Melinda Anderson. And Dr. Stephanie Kraft-Terry is here to talk about the Administrators Institute. Here is episode 70. Welcome back to another episode of the Adventures and Advising Podcast. We're coming off the heels of the 2022 Nakata Annual Conference in Portland. If you attended, I hope you enjoyed the conference and the experience. It was great seeing so many of you there, getting to meet listeners of the podcast, as well as podcast guests that I've only had the chance of meeting virtually. So it was so nice to meet you in person. And we'll talk about the conference and also a big announcement, but let's get to our first interview with Dr. Stephanie Kraft-Terry from University of Hawaii at Manoa. So aside from region conferences and annual conferences, Nakata also has something called institutes. And so today we're talking specifically about the Administrators Institute. Stephanie is the chair of the Administrators Institute Advisory Board. Stephanie, how are you? I'm doing good. Awesome. And so before we start talking about the Institute, let's talk a little bit about you. What was your path, your journey into higher ed? Into higher ed. Okay. So I actually started in the STEM field. So I did my undergraduate degree from a small private school in Oregon called Pacific University, where I got my bachelor's of science in biological chemistry. And then I loved it so much, I went on and did a PhD and I moved into studying um, HIV. And so I did that at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, which is in Omaha, Nebraska. And when I finished that, I said, well, I think I might want to hang on and do research as a career. And so I actually moved to Honolulu, Hawaii, where I went ahead and did a postdoc in uh, clinical HIV research. Um, But during that time, I also had had my daughter. And that was in my last few months of graduate school. And in Hawaii, we had family here. And I learned how amazingly wonderful it is to be near family. And also how much I wanted to be able to stay in a university setting where I would work with undergraduates specifically. And I started looking around for ways I could do that. And I stumbled upon the position I still have today, 10 years later. And it is a very unique position to Hawaii, where I am actually a tenured now faculty that um, my primary responsibilities are in advising. And I think if you'd asked me back when I was a grad student, if this is where I would be, I would have said, no way. What in the world? Um, But when I read the position description for this job, as one of my references told me, it sounded like you'd met someone and they'd wrote a job for you. And it was just the right place at the right time with the right things. You know, in undergrad and even grad school, I'd been heavily involved in student government. In undergrad, I'd been an RA. I'd been an orientation coordinator. I had worked in the dean's office and the career center and all these places. So maybe I didn't know that this was where my fit was going to be, but I found it. And so this is where I've been for now 10 years. And um loving it. So I'm currently the interim director of advising in the College of Natural Sciences here at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Yeah. And then of course, higher ed spans the whole globe and connected to higher ed and is academic advising. And within advising, there's also different organizations, including NACADA. 
which you're also involved in. Can you talk about that involvement? Absolutely. Yeah. So I have to attribute my like first real jump into being actively involved in Nakata to Mugumi Makino Kanahiro, who is some people that are actively involved in Nakata know her well. And um, she kind of served as a mentor when I started here at the university. And she reached out to me and asked if we wanted to co-present. And that was the first time I went from being an attendee at a conference to actually actively participating. And then from there, um, I had some colleagues that encouraged me to apply for the Emerging Leaders Program. And so I did that. And that really opened my eyes to all the different ways I could be involved and all the different things I can do. And then, you know, the bug got me. And from there, um, I served as a chair for the STEM advising community. And then after that, I um, was a cluster representative for the advising communities division. And then I moved on to um, a large amount of involvement in the Institute, which we're going to talk about today, I guess, the um, Administrators Institute. And I guess maybe going backwards a little bit in the early years of my time as an advising administrator, my um, boss at the time encouraged me to look for an opportunity to grow in my administrative role. And that's where I found the Administrators Institute. And when I went to that, I told myself, one day I want to be more involved in this because it was such a neat fit and a neat environment and um, really just excited me to be around colleagues that were all going through similar things. So when I found the opportunity to actually join the advisory board and later serve as faculty in the Administrators Institute, um, that's really become my home the last few years and something I really enjoyed. Yeah. And it almost seems that if you're interested in something and someone knows about it, they'll say, hey, welcome, come, let's let's yeah. work on it together. Let, let's get to work. And so, Absolutely. yeah. And so what what is the Administrators Institute? Yeah. So the Administrators Institute is really an opportunity for administrators across advising. So this is really everyone from I think I'm going to be an administrator one day to somebody serving, you know, at a vice provost or vice president or even provost level that oversees advisors as part of their duties. And at the institutes, it's very engaging. So everyone that comes is going to engage together and the opportunities to learn from each other, share what you know, and then also have the opportunity to sort of guide and work through um, something specific that you want to focus your efforts on while you're there. So you actually are working to create some sort of an action plan to take back to your campus and you're able to get large amounts of feedback from the faculty that run the Institute as well as from all of your colleagues that are there so that you really have kind of a well-informed plan to take back to your campus. But in the process, you're just also learning and consuming so much from both the faculty and the attendees. Is it just if, if someone is already an administrator, you know, that could be someone that could attend, but it also sounds like if someone is looking to be an administrator, but doesn't necessarily have that, that role right now, that is also someone that could attend, correct? Absolutely. Yeah, it's actually divided into two tracks. We call them track A and track B, maybe for lack of a more exciting name. But really what it is, is that track A is for those of us that have sort of singular unit level responsibilities. So like myself as the director of one college advising unit within a larger structure, or maybe for people coming from a smaller institution where advising is really just kind of one entity. Um, and then also for those who are aspiring to become an administrator sort of the next path in their career. So those people would fall under track A, as we call it, and then track 
B is really for those with broader responsibilities, whether it's overseeing, you know, sort of campus-wide advising services with multiple units underneath them, or even system-wide for those that actually have responsibilities that span across multiple campuses, that would be track B participants. And really what it does is it gathers people in a way where they kind of have similar challenges and similar obstacles so that they can work together to brainstorm successful ways to navigate those and really have people that can relate to what they're going through. And then, so I guess if someone's listening going, that sounds like I could fall under track A or maybe I, I could fall under track B. Now I'm interested when and, and where is the Administrative Institute uh, for next year? Yeah, so Administrators Institute is held in February every year. They usually try to keep it in a slightly warmer place. And this year, I think they've succeeded. So we're actually going to be in Orlando, Florida in February. So specifically February 6th through the 8th. 2023, they'll be at the Doubletree by Hilton Orlando at SeaWorld. Nice. Yeah, I think, yeah, you did definitely succeed with, with the warmer place. <laughs> and then, and of course, the, the next question probably will end up being from, from individuals listening might be like, what's it going to cost? Like, what what's the registration rate? What's the hotel? Yeah, so registration is, if you register before January 8th, 2023, it's going to be $795. And then after it's $950. And then the hotel is $139 per night. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into the admissions game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop-your-face-onto-a-water-polo-hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with the admissions game wherever you podcast. Yeah, and so someone listening might think, well, the region conferences are a little over 200. You have the... um, annual conference, which might be a little over $400. Why is the cost so high compared to like maybe these other conferences? Yeah, that's a really good question. So the structure is really quite a bit different than a sort of typical regional or annual conference. So for the um, Administrators Institute, what you have is a team of faculty that are actually there to help run the institute. And so they're really the ones sort of guiding the activities throughout the time there. They're the ones that are giving presentations, leading concurrent sessions and plenary discussions. And then they lead um, guides and guide smaller group discussions within the different tracks. And so it's a little bit different structure and therefore requires different supports. And also really the goal is to keep it kind of intimate. And so to have enough faculty and things there that when you're having breakout groups and small group discussions, that you're not having really large, gigantic groups, right? 20, 25 people in these groups that are each led by a faculty member. So it's a bit of a different experience than what your traditional conference would be. And also you have the opportunity to have things like one-on-one discussions with these faculty members that are there. And they're really brought in from a broad variety of backgrounds and disciplines so that whether you are leading a team of faculty advisors, you're at a small private school or a large research institution that you have someone there who has that experience that can then help you. Yeah. And it sounds like it's very uh, hands-on, very proactive uh, with this institute, with that structure. 
Very much so. I would say don't come if you don't plan on being engaged because you're going to be there the whole time working hard and learning and sharing with everybody. With the cost, is there any scholarships available uh, that individuals could apply for? Absolutely. And I highly encourage people to do so. So the scholarship actually covers the cost of registration. So it's a wonderful scholarship to get. And then you really just need to get yourself there and then house yourself and the meals that we are unable to offer. So typically you get, for example, breakfast reception together. Very, I think in that way, similar to like annual and regional conferences. And then you were talking a little bit about the the structure and it being faculty-led. Can you talk about like what the typical schedule would look like for the Institute? Absolutely. And I will say for those that are interested, um, this tentative schedule for 2023 is actually posted in live now so they can see specifically the topics of each session. But each day usually consists of at least one plenary session with the whole group. And then everyone divides into their work groups. So those are the ones that I was discussing that are faculty-led small group discussion. And once those are complete, people move on to concurrent sessions, and they usually alternate between concurrent sessions and working groups throughout the day. And then on the final day, the final full day, there is um, an opportunity for one-on-one consultations on the action plan that you've been developing. And so this gives people the opportunity to have sit down one-on-one time with the faculty of their choice. So it's not always the faculty that they've been working with in their small groups, but can in fact be anyone that's there at the Institute. And do you have any examples that you might be able to share of maybe past attendees that were successful maybe implementing the action plans at their institutions? Yeah, you know, I'll share my personal experience, actually, because it really it had been so helpful that it's what made me want to come back. So when I went to the Institute, I was a fairly new advising administrator, still learning my way around. And what I needed to tackle was really how to evaluate advisor performance. You know, this was a new area for me. I'm also at work within a union system, which was new to me as well. And I really wanted to do it correctly and be helpful to my team. And so I went with that goal in mind, but the more that I talked with people in small group and with faculty throughout the Institute, I realized I actually wanted to take a few steps back and I wanted to rewrite from the beginning the way we had our positions descriptions to better encapsulate the sort of culture of our office and then lay out a performance evaluation system that aligned with those position descriptions, including allowing my team the opportunity to self-reflect to share with me what they think was going well, what they needed help with for improvement. Um, so also feedback for me. And then also the opportunity for them to share all the accomplishments that they had throughout the year, which helps me to be sure that everybody um, is equally being asked to do the same amounts of things throughout the year and kind of regulate that, but also helped me to really think about, my goodness, look at all the things that people are doing and all the great work and celebrate that. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't been in these small group discussions, because I actually had colleagues share with me the documents that they used in their units and what they had developed and then used pieces of those to build my own. Building off of that, then in future years, I actually had my team work together to make rubrics that we use now for evaluation. So it's very clearly defined for everybody when you're meeting and when you're exceeding expectations. And that allows me also then to work to celebrate when people are exceeding their expectations and reward them for that extra work. So it was really, really helpful for me because I went in with one idea 
and I haven't thought about how that fit into the broader picture of what I was doing. And I had so much feedback from the people in my group that I left with a much more robust package to implement when I got back. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And hopefully anyone listening really kind of takes that to where it's like, I should attend this because I I may have an idea, but I'll have plenty of people there that are going to maybe ask more questions, dive deeper into it, and really flesh out this action plan that I really can come back to my institute and implement it. And more than likely, it'll be something successful as well. Yeah. And as a faculty member, I can say that the teams that I've worked with in the last few years, and especially last year, you know, a lot of people were grappling with things like wanting to learn from others, how they're successfully making hybrid work, work within their institutions and learning not only just the day-to-day of how it works, but how are policies being developed? How are you dealing with everything from being sure people have equipment and technology to, you know, trusting that people are able to do the work where they are. Um, You know, how do you support advocating for that if that's not something that's happening on your campus yet? How do you support advisor training in these new models? You know, and it was really neat to see those robust discussions happening because some, some institutions have figured these things out and have good models and it's great to be able to learn and share with others. And then others are still working on it, but they're able to learn about new resources and things that they could use. So it was really just a great opportunity for people to connect. And, you know, I think after the pandemic, especially, we've all been eager to connect and learn because nothing is quite the same as it used to be, right? Yeah. And if anyone has any questions, they want to reach out to you, um, how's the best way for them to get in contact? Oh, yeah. They're always welcome to email me. Um, I don't know. Should I share my email address right here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, it's craft, K-R-A-F-T, and then the number two at hawaii.edu. I'm happy to take input, inquiries. Um, I'd love to share more about the Institute. Like I say, it's always been a really positive experience for me and one that I encourage any aspiring or current administrator to engage in. And I probably can't say enough great things about it, not just because I chair the advisory board right now, but because I've just found it to be a really supportive and helpful environment. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. And thank you for having me. Thanks, Stephanie, for joining and talking about the Administrators Institute. The Institute sounds very beneficial and will include a link to the website in our show notes. Stephanie, it was great meeting you in person at the Portland Conference. And I hope listeners will take a look at the Administrators Institute website and get registered and hopefully get to attend in February. And speaking of the Portland Conference, we had a panel session at the conference titled Podcast Live, Lessons Learned from Advising Administrators, Innovative Approaches to Managing Change. And thank you to everyone who joined that session. It was great seeing listeners of the podcast there, as well as previous guests, such as Michael Giroux, Jessica Staten, Chris Kirchhoff, Joshua Lineroad, Patricia McMillan, Sarah Howard. And I know there were more of you there. Uh, I'm just blanking out right now as I record this, but it meant a lot to me to see so many familiar faces there. And we weren't allowed to record the session, so those who attended got the live version, but we did do a pre-recording already, which I think is actually better. In a live conference session, you have an hour or more like 50 minutes with 10 minutes for audience questions. So the recording allowed us to have a full in-depth conversation that is over an hour and a half. And we have split it in two parts. Part one is with Nicole Kent and Dr. Kevin Thomas. And part two is with Dr. Leah Frierson and Dr. Tara Stoffel-Warden. But before we get to that, 
the big announcement is that I am ending, sort of, the Adventures in Advising podcast, and that'll end with episode 75. So January 2023 will be the last continuous episode of the podcast. It'll be 75 episodes and three years of doing two episodes per month. All good things must come to an end, and I'd rather end on a high note than drive the podcast into the ground when no one wants to listen to it. It's always been a blast making these episodes, and this has always been a passion project, if you will. But I'm getting a little tired, and I don't want to commit to something if I can't give you 100% each episode. So the countdown begins. Uh, It's going to be bittersweet. And even though the podcast is ending with episode 75, that's not meaning the podcast is ending, ending. So what I mean by that is I'll have standalone episodes or special edition episodes every so often. What's ending is having the regular run of the podcast of doing two episodes per month. But all the previous episodes will still be available to listen to as well. So this is definitely not a goodbye by any means. Now back to the next interview, which is a panel style. The context of this interview is what lessons have advising administrators learned about themselves, as well as the staff they supervise. Are there any innovative practices that they've implemented to help ensure not only student success, but the well-being and retention of their academic advisors? And what challenges do they still face? And will advising ever feel like a fulfilling profession again? So let's get the unsaid said on the strategies we should be implementing to help students and also you, the advising professional. And shout out to Dr. Banks Blair and the Advisor Training and Development Advising Community for sponsoring our session at the Portland Conference. All right, hello and welcome to our Nakata Annual Conference Panel Session and Special Edition of the Adventures in Advising Podcast. Uh, my name is Matt Markin, and I get to host this session with none other than Dr. Melinda Anderson, Executive Director of Nakata. Melinda, you haven't hosted with me in a while. I've been sad. It's great to have I you. I know. Back. I've been missing you, Matt. You know, I just love the way that we're able to engage and elicit these stories and, and people benefit from the experience. But I have missed seeing you. Yes. And on this panel, we have a spectacular panel of guests and let's introduce them. So first up is Nicole Kent. So Nicole Kent is starting her 18th year in advising at Oregon State University. She holds a master's of education in college student services administration from OSU with a focus on academic advising. She began her career as an academic advisor in OSU's College of Pharmacy, where she was awarded Nakata's new advisor certificate of merit. Nicole next served the College of Engineering as Assistant Director of Undergraduate Programs, launching an academic resource center and coordinating peer academic coaching. For the last eight years, Nicole has served as Manager of Advising and Academic Relations at OSU's College of Forestry. She leads a team of academic advisors who have achieved the highest level of student satisfaction with advising at OSU. Together, they serve students on two physical campuses and online. Since joining Nakata in 2003, Nicole has found professional development, support, and inspiration in Nakata. Her leadership roles include chair of Nakata Region 8, region division representative to the Nakata Council, chair of the Finance Committee, and serving in the advising administration community. Nicole, welcome. How are you? Hey, thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. Very happy to be here. Yes, we're happy for you to join us. And then up next, we have Kevin Thomas. 
And let me just find your bio, Kevin. So Kevin is Associate Vice President for Enrollment Management at the University of Central Arkansas. And I love the photo that Kevin submitted. Kevin previously served as a Director of Retention and Student Success at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville, where he led efforts that resulted in an increased retention rate over that time of 10%. Prior to SIUE, Kevin served as the Director of Academic Advising and Retention Center at Western Kentucky University. At UCA, Kevin establishes the collective vision and direction of the offices within enrollment management, which includes the offices of academic advising, admissions and enrollment services, financial aid, the registrar's office, online, transfer and returning student services, student athlete advising and the Veterans Resource Center. Within NACADA, Kevin has served as the chair of the advising administration community, the chair of the 2017 annual conference in St. Louis, an ELP mentor twice, served on the board of directors and was selected as an outstanding advising administrator. Kevin earned his doctorate in educational leadership from Western Kentucky University and his master's and bachelor's degree from Murray State University. Kevin, welcome. I am so glad to be back. I'm trying to figure out if I can mimic the photo. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to to make sure that I'm representing appropriately, but I'm so glad to be back and spending time with you all. Yes. So thank you so much, Nicole, Kevin, you know, uh, Matt and I have just been looking forward to being able to have this conversation with you. And so it's just amazing to hear all the work that you've done at your respective campuses, but then also in Nakata. And so I know that we're going to have a great uh, conversation. So I will kick it off with our first question. And so, Nicole, we'll start with you and then go to Kevin. So if you could just help us understand a little bit about your path and your journey into higher education. Sure. I actually started my educational journey in um, a music therapy program. I was going to save the world through music because uh, that is a passion of mine. And so I did complete a bachelor's of music in music therapy. And that program involved a lot of um, psychology courses and working with uh, kids in different levels of the K-12 system. So that was kind of my first exposure to working in education. I quickly realized that there were not full-time jobs with benefits for music therapists and that that probably wasn't a very sustainable career choice. So I ended up moving on to work with the Boys and Girls Club, which is an organization pretty well known across the U.S., a youth development organization really focused on access for all kids to youth development programming. And that's where I quickly decided I wanted to work with more grown-up youth. (laughs) It's like maybe that college students would be more of an interest area for me. So I um, found Oregon State University's master's program for college student services. And gosh, you, you know those moments in your life when you stumble into something that is a perfect fit for you. That was truly my experience. And Um, Gosh, one of my first terms, I took a class on academic advising, which happened to be taught by Karen Sullivan Vance, who many (laughs) in Nakata know and and revere. And I had an aha moment in that class with Karen in 2002, where I realized that this was something that would be a great fit for my interests and uh, and hopefully some of my strengths. So that's what lit the advising fire. And so I started working as an academic advisor while I was still in graduate school. And lo and behold, when I finished that master's degree, there was a position open for me here at OSU. So I ended up staying at an institution I planned to be at for exactly two years. And that was 20 years ago. So that's how those things go. Very happy to have been here at Oregon State all these years in different levels of advising. 
And as Matt kind of mentioned in my bio, I've had the opportunity to serve as a frontline advisor, um, particularly working with students in, in healthcare professions, um, but also working in engineering, doing some more um, like advising administration and student success work. And then my current role here in OSU's College of Forestry is um, we have decentralized advising. So I oversee advising for my college. So I'm really kind of a mid-level manager, I think you could say, in terms of how advising administrators shake out around the association. So my perspective is kind of that middle place of really trying to support a team, still serving some students. I have a small group of students that I still advise so I can try to stay relevant, um, but also trying to manage up and trying to affect change up the chain in an institution. Um, literally just this morning, we were talking about reviewing advising at our institution and how to get the right voices into that process. Right. So that's, that's how I got here and where I am now. No, thank you so much for sharing. And I, I loved hearing about how, you know, your introduction academic advising came through your master's program because when you kind of talk to people about, you know, their graduate level work and, and introductions into advising, sometimes they're not always in alignment. Shout out to Karen Sullivan Vance for those who know her. Um, so she's currently working at the executive office, but I know that she was at OSU for a while. So Kevin, if you could please share with us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, I'm glad to. Um, it's hard to follow Nicole's path there. And, and you know, she's got so many things going on and so, such a depth of experience. I think about this question differently uh, each time I, I would hear that or somebody would ask, you know, how did you get where you are? And the, the thing that strikes me today is the very first time I went to a college campus was for my orientation. And I went uh, to, to the college and sat down, picked out my classes. And this is when you'd go into a, like a, a large conference room and schedule your classes. And I went in and I sat across from an advisor and I had, I think, 15 or 16 hours scheduled there. And the advisor looked at me and said, um, sorry, like you, your ACT is what? And it was a 16. I had a 16 on the ACT the very first time I took it, got like, um, partially admitted. And, and, and that was the start of my journey. He looked at the schedule and goes, Oh, you can't, you can't handle the schedule. You need to go to a community college. And that was the reference that I received, um, when I'm sitting across from him. And that was the start of my college journey. And so when you think about that process, um, it completely articulates, the need for this association um, and our profession as a whole, because um, great advising <laughs> equals great retention. And uh, there are a lot of students, a lot of kids, especially at that 17, 18 year old, when they would have heard that from a faculty member would have said, I'm out of here and um, just moved on to different things. Um, probably in a somewhat unhealthy fashion, I put that on my shoulder as a chip and um, really just own that as motivation um, through the rest of my career to a point. Um, you know, uh, I graduated uh, four years, decided that I wanted to do a master's in college student personnel and, and did that and, you know, started that path in housing um, before transitioning into the advising world. Um, and, and I was fortunate in that move too from uh, the housing transition to advising. I remember in my interview, um, somebody asked me about my experience in advising. I said, oh, I don't know how to advise. And uh, afterwards, my boss, uh, dear mentor to me, Dr. Ellen Bonagero comes up. She goes, never say that again. She goes, you know how to advise. You just don't know the curriculum yet. And um, that really rang true 
for how I would treat uh, my experience in advising, but also how I would hopefully develop other people around me because um, advising is relational. Advising is so many things more than the curriculum. And so many of those skill sets are things that are happening throughout campus. Um, but as advisors, we carry a mantle of the curriculum and the relationship and the connection and the outreach and the um, reaching out to students when they may be struggling. And we, we carry that mantle. Um, Matt mentioned in the bio um, that my work a lot of times has been within retention and it's work that I'm super proud of. Um, but it's also work that I think is super individual in nature. I'm always humored by people who are like, well, what programs are you doing to uh, improve retention? And I said, well, it's this one called Caring for Students. And, and that is really the truth of it, right? You can do a whole lot of programs and throw a whole lot of money at things. But when it comes down to it, it is every student has their own journey. And if you don't find a way to know every student in some way, shape or form through an advisor, through a program, through whatever it may be, through an email, whatever it is from an outreach standpoint, um, you're not connecting with that student in the, in the best possible way. And so uh, I was fortunate to work in re retention, um, uh, overseeing for a couple campuses and then um, presenting uh, an advising uh, session, the nuts and bolts of advising with fellow Nakata colleagues. I uh, was at a conference and presenting and after the session was over, my uh, now boss comes up to me and says, hey, I'd like to talk to you about a job. And so that's how I got to the University of Central Arkansas. Um, I was presenting with colleagues uh, from other institutions within the country. And um, she said, I like what you're talking about. Um, she goes, what do you think about enrollment management? And I said, I work in academic advising. She goes, same thing. And I said, you know what? You're probably right. It's very similar. And so uh, um, I've been here for three years and absolutely love the job that I get to do, um, overseeing all the things that Matt mentioned, but really realizing how those things um, intertwine together um, because so much of the world of advising is no longer in that narrow focus that we, we view advising and is in a much broader look at um, a holistic approach to student success. And so um, that is that is my journey with skipping some parts in there along the way, but that, that's pretty close uh, for, for that, that question there, Melinda. Well, no, thank you so much for sharing. And I, I love your, I always love stories and what people have experienced. So thank you for sharing that what you encountered initially is what it is that you strive to not be with your students. And hilarious, okay, about the, it's called caring for students because that you're absolutely spot on that in every aspect of the institution, senior level administrators are striving for it's not about always standardizing a particular approach. It's at the end of the day of the outcomes focused on the way that we care about our students. So thank you so much for sharing that. I do have to talk a little bit about Kevin and also Nicole, because, you know, they're splitting their time between doing this. But, um, you know, Kevin, as a previous uh, annual conference uh, chair, was very helpful. Yeah, I mean, he reached out and said, there's anything you need. You need feedback on anything, suggestions, let me know. And he's been very helpful in that sense. And Nicole is also in her time because she's also one of our entertainment hospitality co-chairs uh, for the conference. So a lot of great things that uh, her and Winnie Tang have planned out. So just want to thank them both for that. And I forgot to mention in Nicole's bio that she also splits her time with choir and community theater. And uh, the next project, I guess, is Sweeney Todd. 
which when I saw that, it made me think of uh, Craig McGill, who I think wrote an article related with Sweeney Todd with the music. So a lot of connections there. It's true. He sent me three articles that he has written about uh, Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. So talk about being multifaceted. That's what I love about the advising community. Everybody has these other areas of expertise that they can weave in. Yes, absolutely. So let's jump into our next question. And uh, Nicole, I'll go back to you. In your current role, like what is your current role? And have you seen academic advising change since the pandemic? How could anyone say no to that question? I can't imagine. My current role and my official title is Manager of Advising and Academic Relations here in our College of Forestry. My functional title is Head Advisor. So we have a team of student services folks here in our college. Um, I oversee a group of six academic advisors um, serving our students. We have a required advising model. We see our students every quarter. And in fact, most of our students uh, do two to three contacts with their advisor every quarter. So we, uh, we're we busy like everyone. And so, you know, my primary, my primary work is administration of advising. And like I said earlier, I do a little bit of direct academic advising myself. I have a group of students who are here on campus and I have a group of online students who are, gosh, all over the country. Some of them might be out of the country right now for all I know, some of our military folks. So, you know, my, my job is to, as I see it, is to support my team first. I think caring for students is an excellent retention strategy. And the way that I do that is keep the advising team running the best that we can, keep them resourced, keep them appreciated, <laughs> and try to remove the barriers that they encounter to doing their work well. And I feel like that, by extension, is how I can then serve our students well. And what we have seen change low these last almost three years, two and a half, three years, I think the biggest change that we've observed is the level of stress and worry and, and just mental health challenges that our students are now carrying. I think that's always been kind of part of being a college student is a higher level of stress and managing your time and your finances, et cetera. But I think many of us, maybe most of us experienced a lot more challenges to keeping you know, positive, keeping good mental health through the pandemic. And we're absolutely seeing that with our students as um, you know, their finances got tighter, their housing situations got more difficult, their social interactions all but dried up. So the work of, of advising has leaned so much more toward the work of counseling. And we are not licensed counselors on our team, but the, the care work that has been required has been significant. And we've talked a lot about the, um, the way that that can deplete you as a, a care provider, if you will, as an advisor, as an advisor. So I would say that's the biggest change. And, and seeing how that's rippled out for the students, they're carrying these heavier loads um, in terms of just what they're experiencing and their stress. And that is not helping their academic performance in many cases. And if your academic performance starts to suffer, then the finances that you rely on sometimes dry up. And so what happens? You go and you work more. And now you're trying to balance more work with school, which again, doesn't typically lead to academic success or a balance in life that makes you a happier person. And it's just this awful cycle that we're seeing. I would say that's the biggest change. 
Yeah. And just like you're saying, it, it's it's definitely like this cycle. Um, and kind of like you were saying too, it's it's the students, but then also that also translates to like advisors, other staff on campus. Like it's just all across the board. Um, how about you, Kevin, at, at UCA? Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of what Nicole said, especially on the student side, echoes true even to the students that we have here in, in Arkansas. And and I say that just because, you know, being from two different areas of the country and especially being from the South, the pandemic wasn't taken as seriously as I think it was, um, especially in the Northwest part of the country. And and so for us, you know, we were very rarely gone from campus and then back in, in, in fairly full time. And and I think that that was a challenge for sure. Flexibility is has come with um, things since the pandemic. You know, like I have advisors that are um, full-time working caseloads that, that are pretty fair balance in, in that 300 range, but we've offered flexibility in the job that there are a couple days a week that they're going to be remote. Um, and those things have been really helpful, not only given everything with the pandemic, but given everything with the economic situation in the country and rising inflation and the things that really have been there. And then all of a sudden, some of the things that we can't do from a standpoint of increasing pay for our staff members have really been helpful in the fact that they have greater flexibility and freedom to do their job in ways that pre-pandemic, I think, would have been very difficult to do. Um, and so you look at what we've really been able to accomplish. Um, I think that, you know, when when everything started to go remote, I was really concerned about how we would serve our students and, and advisors um, on our campus and, and from what I've heard, advisors throughout the, the globe stepped up in ways of support that shouldn't have shocked us, right? Like we know our heart, the hearts of our advisors, like they do tremendous jobs. Um, but I, I think the thing that also came from that is that we are able to serve students where they're at and not necessarily have to be in the ways that we thought about advising pre-pandemic. And uh, I, I, I think that there's a place for like an advising syllabus, right? I think that that's still a tool that's helpful, but I also think that in that tool, like you're, you're, you're telling the student how you would like to advise. And I don't know that that really applies as much as it does, it does now, because I feel like so often now the students are telling us how they would like to be advised where that would need to be at, where, where, how, how can I be best supported as a student in my journey? And that individual approach to um, our outreach to them within advising um, has become almost paramount to the conversation because we have students that are often being advised virtually and that's the way that they're, we're connecting. And, and we have certain things like, Hey, please turn on your camera and, and those type of things so that we can build the relationship. But um, there are things that have gone really well as far as our connection with students, as we've seen increases in retention and increases in student satisfaction when we survey students um, in the advising relationship. And, and that's just been a really nice um, aspect of the growth of the profession um, since the pandemic occurred. I just, I had another thought to offer on this, uh, what has changed in advising. Um, we were remote for a very long period of time. We were almost, almost a year and a half fully remote. And when students began to come back to campus, we saw learning loss and atrophy of academic skills and, and all the ways that that has affected them in the classroom and in navigating the institution and the uh, sort of the bureaucracy that you also have to learn and understand. Mm -hmm. So I would just offer up another, another change in our work has been a lot more academic coaching, a lot more working with students to understand that 
you do have to go to class <laughs> to participate and to learn. You know, a lot of people thought like, well, you know, it's it's recorded. I'll watch it later. Or, mm -hmm. you know, that became like an optional feeling for folks. So I think we'll have that bubble continuing to go through of whatever like learning didn't occur or, uh, you know, information that just wasn't well retained or skills that were never really built in our students. And they're coming through with a different level of need for us to supplement that. No, thank you for, for offering those thoughts. You know, one of our questions um, was talking about, you know, the innovations, right, that sometimes these experiences can bring. And so thank you, Kevin, for starting that conversation and Nicole for adding to that. Uh, because I know that we've all hoped maybe two years ago that we would be able to say pandemic, what pandemic it's moved on. But, you know, what we're recognizing too, is that it's, it's still in, in continues in certain respects and, you know, it's different based on how your institution has been resourced, but you're absolutely right about the needs of the students have changed. Kevin, you have a strong point about now students feel more comfortable in being able to articulate what they need. And so as you're thinking about some of the innovation or strategies that you've utilized, you know, for advisors to, to keep engagement with students, what are some of the challenges that you think that advisors still face, you know, as we are negotiating um, these new dynamics in higher education overall? I'm not sure we're all done being burned out, to be honest. I know so many people have experienced that uh compassion fatigue that came from these intense experiences, really trying to provide deep care and fill gaps for our students. And we have simultaneously been reinventing every process to deliver remotely or, or to in, incorporate what we learned about remote delivery. So, you know, there's been a lot of extra work. Gosh, we're on our third season of orientation and we have re- done orientation the last three years. And we all keep looking at each other like we got to do it the same way twice because we're exhausted. <laughs> so I think that the challenge we're all facing is how to heal from mm. this collective trauma that mm. we've experienced, how to continue bringing our very best to our students and to our colleagues, and how to reset our expectations for what this should look like, the level of work that many people had to do was above and beyond sort of your, your typical work week to get through the pandemic and to, to do what needed to be done to take care of everyone. And we can't sustain that forever. So I also think we're faced with this challenge of it's a new landscape. Students now come to us for some new things, have new expectations of us. And we have to kind of reset the level that we can give to our work to do it well and keep a balance with the rest of our lives and not burn out extraordinary colleagues asking them to do too much. Great points. Thank you, Nicole. Kevin, anything that you might want to add to what are some of the challenges that we're still facing? So I for sure think the the burnout part of that's there and, and, and echoing what Nicole said and even to maybe look at that in a different way is, and I don't know that advising jobs have ever been eight to four thirty, eight to five in nature, but as the jobs have gained more flexibility, advisors are now in positions where they're seeing students in different timeframes. And so how are you balancing when you get the email at six or seven o'clock at night and you feel like, well, this was kind of a work from home day. I, I, I'll go ahead and answer it. Um, and so 
the the separation is not necessarily there because um, the walls that of our offices, the the, the campuses that we reside on, um, that were such a key to that separation and that personal professional balance, um, have kind of changed um, the way that advisors are having to function. And I think that and this moves to a conversation about administrators, you know, like I think as administrators, that's one of those things that we often say is one of the toughest transitions from um, some frontline positions to being an administrator. That's like, how do we turn it off? And now all of our staff um, and all of the advisors are really facing something completely similar to, to that experience of um, joining the ranks of administration and, and not being able to turn it off. The other thing that I think is for there for sure there is a challenge is um, the fact that we are really in a global and national market. Um, you know, advising remotely is is incredibly possible. There was an institution this week that sent something out that said, you know, virtual advising position, you know, X dollars that was roughly ten fifteen thousand dollars more than I pay my advisors, and it's like that's quite a draw and I can't compete in that market. And it's not universities only competing against each other, but it is um, businesses that are in the area that all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, we can do work from home and you don't have to necessarily drive this far. And those jobs become very attractive to advisors that probably aren't being paid the way that we would like them all to be paid. And so that marketplace really opening up for some incredibly qualified advisors um, has put us in a place where we've seen the great resignation and we, we're trying to keep staff. And so um, that has definitely been a challenge uh, that, that, we, that we've been facing here. And when we've lost folks, we've lost advisors and we've lost staff, um, it has typically been to um, virtual or work from home experiences. And um, that's where we're seeing the, the greatest change and the greatest challenge, probably. Okay. No, thank you. Yeah, cause, I mean, we even had an advisor that left to do a virtual advising position because it just made more sense for them. Um, and with their lifestyle and their kids that instead of commuting, they could do the same thing, but do it virtually and be remote. Um, but yeah, as both of you said, like the burnout, it it's real. And it's like you can't be deflated and rise at the same time. And, you know, it's something, too, where, um, you know, there's a, a communication workshop a title called like the fish isn't sick, the water is dirty. And it's something where it's like, we're needing to address how can we be more innovative and really collaborate and, and be a team. So I guess, have you seen any, uh, whether it's at your institutions, what you've heard of, or even your suggestions in leadership positions of innovative practices that we could be doing to help ensure not only that we're doing, having that student success, but also that we have that well-being um, and retention in mind of our academic advisors. Well, you know, it was an idea that we had kicked around in the advising community here at our institution, and we thought it was just a, a dream. And this morning, I was getting ready, thinking about the upcoming conference and reviewing the schedule of presentations. And lo and behold, somebody's talking about having made our dream come true on their campus. So I'll have to go to that session. But we wished for a pool of utility advisors, if you can call them that. I'm sure there's a better name for that. But especially as we're seeing so much transition, so much turnover, uh, people leaving jobs, starting new jobs in advising, there's just gaps to fill. And it is very, very hard on 
those who remain when you're trying to cover a vacancy and get someone new trained up and keep keep everything rolling. So gosh, that idea of having some utility players trained up centrally on your campus that you could just deploy to the units that need them in that moment, um, perhaps that you could then also utilize in orientation activities, in recruitment activities, for more of these academic success and coaching conversations. Think of all the ways if we had a team of great generalists that we could just be filling gaps and keeping things going. So I cannot claim that that is an innovation we have made, but it's on my wish list. Yeah, definitely. And Kevin, anything to add with that? You know, I I mean, I... I don't think it's innovative anymore, but I think the one thing that stands out to me is as an institution, if you're not offering flexibility within the workplace, I think you're going to struggle to keep folks um, satisfied in their working experience and that those folks will think that their well-being is being considered. So I think the flexibility is for sure part of that. I also think that um, with advisors that you're also talking about the challenges that are in front, Um, I, I don't, it's a weird statement to say this, but I almost feel like one of the benefits of the transition that we've had is that during the pandemic as well, we were switching from a mixed model advising style on campus of uh, primary role advisors and faculty advisors to just primary role. That transition has been occurring over the last two years. And I feel like because that's been happening over that period of time, it has also kind of it is, uh, allowed for innovation to occur in their roles changing and their relationships changing. And all of a sudden the classes that they were advising for in business as first and second year as second, first and second year advisors um, are now um, relationships that they're getting to have with faculty members that teach those courses and students that they're getting to see through all four years and not just through one year. Um, I think that that change has really been refreshing and it seems like one of those things that where I feel like it would be overwhelming. And I'm not saying that there weren't those moments, um, but I do think that that, that has allowed for um, a new experience during uh, a little bit of a chaotic time. And I think that it's been really healthy um, to have those changes occurring. And, and so um, this isn't saying switch your model around and that's going to solve all things, um, but it may be uh, saying that keep things fresh, you know, make sure that you're providing new challenges and new opportunities for your staff and for advisors and make sure that you're looking at things in a new way, um, whether that's professional development and training, doing it in a different way than you've ever done before, whether that's bringing people to your campus um, to talk about advising issues and, and, and things that are going on. I just think there's a lot of ways to look at things in a different pattern that can be um, innovative and um, also energizing to your team. No, thank you both for your comments. You know, you know, you guys have probably heard the phrase, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so when you think about some of the, you know, challenges um, that you've mentioned, and then how do we respond to that? How do we continue to be innovative? How do we continue to be creative and take advantage of uh, what remains is what uh, struck me when you both were talking and capitalizing on those opportunities um, to number one, let staff know that you're aware Right. I think sometimes people think, well, don't they understand what's going on? Like, oh, no, we're aware, you know, but what are the strategies that we can implement that can help serve and support while you're thinking about how your student success needs to remain, you know, oriented to your mission? So uh, I just well, I want to thank you both for sharing um, that information with the audience. 
And so when you think about, <laughs> you know, what advice, you know, ad- to advisors that you think would be useful for those who might, you know, feel unsupported by their institution um, and feel as students are seen as a number, what what advice would you give, you know, when you reflect on your experiences and what been a- you've been able to provide to your institutions? Uh, what advice would you would you give to advisors who might be feeling some kind of way or, you know, related to this idea that do they see us? Do they value our work? I will offer two thoughts. Um, one, maybe, I don't know, overly optimistic and one practical. <laughs> and, and probably people in the audience could pull what suits them best. But in terms of being optimistic, be optimistic. I always say, just keep my face toward the sunshine. Do not turn to the shadows because there's so much that you can focus on in terms of what's hard, what's not going well, um, what barriers you might be facing. But if I keep my focus on the good that I can do and on the impact that I can have, who I'm helping, who I'm serving, that boosts me. Um, you know, and celebrating those wins, I think, really just helps internally kind of managing your own feelings and your, you know, the control you can have over how you recognize the value of your work. The practical matter, though, keep advocating. You make sure people understand what you're doing. And a great way to do that is to gather some data about the impact that you're having. The sweet people on our team here, I drive them crazy because I ask them to keep track of the advising contacts that they have, whether it's an office appointment or a phone call or a a kind of advising related email, not a hey, hi email, but like something with some advising substance. And I know that that is a chore. But over the years, this means that we have a really powerful illustration of the amount of contact time that we have with students. And when it's time to say, how many advisors does it take to serve 1,200 students? I can easily justify that six is not enough because we've got 15, 16, 17,000 advising contacts in one year. So if you can, kind of saving that data, saving testimonials from students who have been positively impacted by the advising experience, those kinds of things help you illustrate powerfully the work that you're doing to the leaders that you have to advocate to. So uh, if I can follow up, 100% everything that Nicole said, right? Because here's the thing, like, I fully believe that, you know, when we're talking about our advisors and and those steps that they can take, that what she, what she was able to articulate is that the jobs that they're doing are so powerful and so critical and so important. But if I can just offer another side to that is that we also get to this point where we become so loyal to a fault and sometimes we don't realize it's also time to move on. And so like really quickly, when that question was asked, um, I thought very much about this quote that I saw today um, by NBA basketball player Kobe Simmons, who who I didn't know before today. And then I saw it come across. A bottle of water can be 50 cents at the supermarket, $2 at the gym, $3 at the movie, and $6 on a plane. Same water. Only thing that's changed was a value that was placed. So the next time you see or you're not feeling your uh, your worth is nothing, maybe you're at the wrong place. And I see so many people, so many people that are so loyal to an institution to a fault. 
And sometimes all of the things that Nicole talked about, about care and what we're doing with the job and, and, and how powerful that you can be in your role and, and all those things, just realize that you are also an incredibly powerful person and your profession and where you're going and your career is important too. And if your institution isn't valuing, valuing you, um, then that's also one of those things that you need to take into account as well. No, thank you for offering that. You know, I, I love those two different perspectives, um, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, what Nicole has done to kind of show up for staff, Kevin, what you've done to show up for your staff. Uh, but then remembering at the the end of the day, you know, how are you valuing the way that you see yourself operating on your campus? And so thank you so much. I appreciate that. Let's maybe hear more personal from from both of you in the sense of, you know, I'm sure in your leadership type positions that you've learned some things. And, you know, have there been any lessons that as an advising administrator, you know, that you've learned about yourself or about the staff that, that you're supervising? I had the opportunity to give a presentation with one of my favorite colleagues, uh, Andrew Brewick from the University of Idaho, on this topic. Uh, I think we called it Adventures in Management, and it was really intended to address nobody teaches you to lead. <laughs> no, there's very little training when you come into these types of positions, whether it's middle management like me or maybe even a more advanced institutional role like Kevin's. So what have I learned? Um, my number one mantra that I have decided about my own leadership style is that I aspire to be an us-we leader. You have all probably heard, I hear people who are I-me leaders, and they talk about, it's my team, it's my this, it's my that, I did this. And it, too easily, people with that style are taking credit for the work of others um, or can very easily allow those on their teams to disappear into the I, me. And so I feel like the number one thing I always keep in front is we are a team. I talk about our team. This is what we are doing. And I just feel like it's an important way for me to set a tone that I'm in this with you and we are here together to do this work. And I'm not better than you because I have manager in my title. I would be up a creek in a hot second if any one of these people decided to walk away and stop bringing the excellence that they bring every day. So for me, it's being an us-we leader. That is my number one lesson about management administration. Oh, you know, I, I love that that viewpoint of it. Kevin, how about you? I, I also embrace Nicole's we, not me philosophy. Uh, that, that, that I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, the other thing too, and, and, and I, I remember hearing about this for um, year after year of talking to my supervisors and, and supervisors that I, that I happened to work with. And they talked about the, the higher that you go up organizationally, the more removed you are from students. And so that's 100% true, right? You have to really work to engage yourself with students and so I think one of the lessons that I've learned are the things that are motivational to me as an administrator often come from the successes of the um, adv academic advisors that I get to work with, um, that their successes are often things that I am celebrating just as much as something that I think I would have celebrated that was just something that I feel like I did in an advising appointment before. Um, and that you have to realize that you maybe have a smaller part of the journey of the individual interaction 
but if you're doing your job as an administrator well, that you're setting your team up for greater success in the overall scheme of the work that they're doing. And it's a different way to have to look at um, your motivations within the profession, because I think we all get into this to impact students. And so that has been the greatest transition. The greatest lesson is that if I am doing my job well, I allow for other advisors to have the greatest amount of success that they can have in their experience. Um, you know, so many institutions move to test optional um, on the admission standpoint. And the question then comes up, well, what does that mean for placement? And so it's like, well, okay, when we're having those meetings about placement, what makes sense for advisors and making sure that we're going into those meetings, having conversations with advisors on how it will impact. Because from the admission standpoint, it's like, great, we're removing a barrier and a barrier that needed to be removed anyway. But from the advising standpoint, did that test score really help you in placement into a biology course? And do you see things from that? And if you do, what are the alternates that are there? You know, it, it's it's really embracing those advisors as a bigger part of the solution um, and not just that we're all dealing with a problem. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Right. Absolutely. I, I, the, the, <clears throat> the us, we, not me, and the idea of expanding um, the impact um, of the work that we we do to support our students is really critical when you think about how we're embracing and shifting that culture. So thank you both. Um, I don't know about you, Matt, but I'm just, I'm really engaged in this conversation. I don't know. I mean, many of you might not uh, be aware of how fantastic Nicole and Kevin are, but just kind of hearing your responses to these questions, it's just, there's, it's, it's undeniable. So, you know, just shifting a little bit when we start thinking about professional development um, and what should it look like at an institutional lens, what are your thoughts about that, especially as we started talking a little bit about advisor well-being? What are some recommendations that you would have? Uh, in response to the question about working as an administrator effectively, the other thing I want to just say is build a great network of people who do similar work, of people who can mentor you. Um, and so I guess I would offer that forward as an answer to professional development. I think we need to really make sure that there are opportunities for advisors to get out of their offices, whether it's physically or virtually, and gather and collaborate and learn from one another. Obviously, Nakata is an incredible venue for, for that. I would also say on our institution, on our campuses, that needs to be happening. And so something very simple, OSU has a quarterly, monthly advisor coffee talk series. And someone in the provost's office pays for coffee. Thank you very much to the provost's office. And they arrange different guest speakers to come in for an hour. We get together. We have coffee. We hear updates about what's going on in different units around campus. Simple, free, easy. Those kinds of things are really important. Just small ways that we can quickly and easily 
get professional development going for folks. And then that helps you build momentum toward bigger investments like training, you know, more robust training programs, like support for professional association involvement and that type of thing. So I think the the mentorship, the networking and just simple ways people can get involved are really key. The other thing I would say is I'm seeing energy around career ladders for academic advisors, which I think is really exciting. Um, it's in many ways kind of a, a one level position on a lot of campuses. And I think there's room for so much more for advisor one, advisor two, lead advisor, head advisor, advising administrator, whatever that might be. So I'm happy to see that happening in our profession so people can continue to build build on their successes and advance themselves without having to leave the field to advance. And Kevin, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and I'll say, I feel like, at least on our own campus, this is an area of continued growth, but probably renewed focus. I feel like the last couple of years, it's been treading water and not swimming forward. And I really feel like uh, the, our ability to swim forward now is going to allow for um, more professional development to occur and more purposeful professional development to occur. So we're talking about similar things, maybe not coffee, but lunch and learn series, um, bringing in speakers to campus a couple times a year because we're not able to all travel to conferences that are out there and available for our own development. And so how are we able to tap into the resources that are there for, for our team? Uh, the other thing that I think that is really, this is an interesting way to look at professional development. But one of the things that I think is interestingly came from the pandemic is that prior to the pandemic, the individual appointment was where you would evaluate the, the advisor themselves. And so their growth and development came from an interesting interaction where you would maybe watch an advising appointment as a supervisor and they would see how things go, but it was really kind of felt foreign that there were three people in a room. And so um, our ability to ask and, and receive permission from students in advance of virtual appointments to say, hey, um, is it okay if we record this appointment because I'm being um, asked to do so by my supervisor or this is part of my evaluation process and getting actual feedback so that as a prof as a professional that you can become a stronger advisor and receive feedback on an actual appointment has been really, really powerful um, because so often we looked at evaluations and it's like, well, why did this person receive this score? Well, they did this, this, and this. And I'm like, yeah, but how are they doing in the advising appointment? Well, I was only able to observe a couple this year, you know, and now it's more than a couple and we're actually looking at the action, the advising that's occurring in the advising appointment so that we can help grow and develop stronger advisors on our campus. And I think that's been one of those things that's like, you don't look at the evaluation process as a professional development tool, but we for sure have seen that that, that can and will continue to be um, a good way to do that on our campus to make our advisors stronger um, in the areas that they can grow within the conversation and within their work with students. And um, also knowing the resources that are available for uh, appropriate referrals in those appointments. It's just, it's, it's been kind of a, a surprising turn of events. Yeah. And such great advice, you know, already, I think people listening to this can be you know, getting feedback, swimming forward. And then Nicole, what you were saying about there's such, you know, quick and easy ways to get that professional development, but also we're gathering and collaborating, which hopefully people are doing at the Nakata conference in Portland anyway, which is fantastic. And I know we can talk for hours on this, um, but with time, and we also have two other panelists that we will be interviewing as well. But Kevin and Nicole, thank you so much for, for being part of this. 
Thanks for the invitation. And I just can't show enough appreciation for the work you're all doing and all the listeners out there too. And anytime I can hang out with these three, and especially it's been a while since Nicole and I got to connect. So I, I, I'm ecstatic for a little time to just talk about advising and all the wonderful things going on. Well, wonderful. Yeah. Nicole and Kevin, as always, it's so good to see you. And Matt, as always, so good to be able to work with you. Yeah, same here. 100% agree. Hello, we're back for part two of our Nakata panel session and podcast episode titled Lessons Learned from Advising Administrators, Innovative Approaches to Managing Change. In part one, we heard from Nicole Kent and Kevin Thomas. For part two, we have more amazing and knowledgeable guests to share their experiences and expertise. And of course, Melinda Anderson, our executive director of Nakata, is also here. Melinda, are you ready to continue this panel discussion? Absolutely, Matt. You know, uh, the first uh, part was was riveting. And so I know the second part will will be as well because Leah and Tara are amazing professionals um, and care deeply about student success. So I'm excited for our guests to be able to hear from them as well in this part. Yes, for sure. So let's introduce our guest. So let's introduce Leah Frierson, who is also a previous guest on the podcast. Leah provides leadership for the Student Academic Affairs Division of the College Office in Arts and Sciences from Washington University in St. Louis. In her newly created role in collaboration with the Vice Dean and Office Leadership, she is responsible for setting the vision and priorities for the Student Academic Affairs Division, which provides academic advising as well as student programming and services to arts and sciences students. She's been in higher education for nearly two decades, working in areas such as academic advising, student retention, athletics, as well as competitive academic and leadership development programs for students. In Nakata, Leah has served in steering committees focused on first generation and exploratory students and will complete participation in the Nakata Emerging Leaders Program at this year's annual conference and will also serve on the advisory board for EOP and the Administrators Institute. Leah received an AA from Southwestern Community College, a BA in Communication Arts with a focus in broadcast media, a master's in physical education, sports administration, and her EDD in educational leadership, higher education administration from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Welcome back, Leah. Well, thank you. I feel so blessed to be back a second time. I was a little nervous I wouldn't get invited back again, so... (laughs) Uh, thanks for inviting me back, Matt. <laughs> oh, we had to have you back on. We had to have you back on. And Melinda, who's our new guest? Yes. And so our new guest is Tara Stoffel uh, Warden, and she serves as the Assistant Vice Provost for Advising and Academic Services at the University of Cincinnati. She specializes in strategic leadership and innovation program design for advising, enrollment, management, and student success. So how many of us, right, have seen that combination? And so she's fantastic in that role. Tara was the founding director of the University of the UC Center for Exploratory Studies in 2003 and published by Nakata as an exemplary practice in 2007. She established the UC Office for Advising and Academic Services in 2013. And then in 2016, Tara designed and launched a new Center for Pathways Advising and Student Success, which houses transfer and transition student advising, early alert, retention outreach, and advisor training and development. As a part of her commitment to student success, Tara is an advocate for leadership practice, equity, and inclusion. She proposed the establishment of UC's annual equity and inclusion conference, now in its 11th year, Matt. And she now serves as an executive sponsor of New Advisors of Color Employee Resource Group. So Tara was also honored to receive the Barbara Schoolies Award for Outstanding Contributions to the UC Academic Advising Association in 2017. 
from an educational perspective, uh, Tara has completed her um, MED in counseling and student services with a focus in higher education administration and a BA at the University of North Texas. And she graduated, uh, and she's also a graduate of the Higher Education Resource Services HERS Institute. So thank you so much, Tara, for being able to join us. And you've also served many roles uh, actually in the Association of NACADA um, and most recently coming off as the chair of the Administrative Institute where you've been a phenomenal faculty member. So thank you so much for being able to join us today. Thank you, Melinda. I'm super excited to be with you. Yeah, and this is just some of the wonderful things that Tara and Leah have done. Uh, there's so much more that that they've contributed to higher ed and academic advising. And I'm, I'm just honored that, that you both are here today uh, for this podcast and for this panel session. So let's go with the first question, and that's to tell us your path, your journey into higher ed. Leah, let's start with you. And I know you're a previous podcast guest, but for those that are new uh, and listening to this on the Nakata app, on the on-demand session, tell us a little bit more about you. So I'll start from the beginning. Way back when I woke <laughs> up and dreamed about being in higher education. No. Um, so I um, started off in athletics. I was a college athlete um, and then kind of happened into being a women's basketball coach. Um, and started there at a really small institution in Lawrenburg, North Carolina, uh, St. Andrews College, um, but did coaching for about 10 years. I was an assistant. I was a head coach. I was a director of basketball operations. Um, and if you know anything about athletics, when coaching staffs change, I mean, co head coaches change, uh, the staff changes. And I saw it as an opportunity to really um, expand my portfolio. I um, was always responsible for kind of the academic piece of our teams, study hall, tutoring, working with faculty, working with our academic support unit, and that I was always drawn to that. Um, and so when we transitioned um, head coaches, I had the opportunity to stay on at my institution and uh, serve as an academic counselor, um, where I work with students that had academic challenges. Perhaps they um, didn't have all of the criteria to, to be admitted. And so they may have been provisional or maybe they struggled in the previous semester. My entire caseload was that and fell in love with uh, working with those students. I A lot of the skills that I had in coaching in terms of individual development, looking at strengths, I carried over into that role. So I did that for a couple of years. And then that combined some some bit of advising and started doing academic advising in my next role. Um, and that was really, I like to call it a hybrid role of student, student affairs and academic affairs. So I got a chance to do some retention work, some enrollment management, admissions, liaisoning, uh, co-taught a class, did advising. I did all of the things, right? Um, and it was uh, a wonderful experience I had at UNC Wilmington. Um, very transformative, I will say that. And then... Um, I moved on to the McNair Scholars Program, um, which is a wonderful program that does PhD preparation for um, students of color, first gen and low income students. So I had a really uh, great opportunity to go there, uh, build out some things um, for those students and help them to get into PhD programs and then transition to being an assistant dean at UNC Chapel Hill for a few years. Um, and that was a great experience, right? Like high volume, big institution, uh, lots of things going on. 
um, and then uh, had the opportunity to be a director uh, of academic advising for a faculty-driven and more of a faculty-driven model, which was uh, an experience, a learning experience in and of itself, um, but learned a lot. And then came back and worked for um, a scholar program called the Robertson Scholars Program over at Duke. And I love to talk about that program and kind of pub it just a little bit because of the uniqueness of the program. Um, I uh, managed the academic piece of that program and it worked with students across both Duke and Chapel Hill. And so I was responsible for curriculum, learning the curriculum and policy, uh, working with administrators from both campuses, working with financial aid and all these different departments across both campuses. So you can imagine my brain was ready to explode, but it was such a good experience. And I felt like if I could do that, I could do pretty much anything. Um, and now I have, I'm approaching my one year anniversary um, anniversary at Washington University at St. Louis. Um, we underwent a pretty sizable reorg and my position is brand new. And I serve as Associate Dean of Advising and Director of Student Academic Affairs. Um, and my team is 26 strong <laughs> at the moment with four functional spaces that I'm responsible for managing. So, um, you know, we're still building and tweaking and um, hiring many, many people. So uh, hopefully the dust is settling, but uh, we're just, that's where I am at the moment. So thanks, Matt. Yeah. And happy almost one year anniversary. That's pretty Thank exciting. <laughs> so Tara, do you want to talk about your, your journey in higher ed? Sure can, Matt. I think uh, you, you'll want to hear perhaps my journey from being an RA 30 years ago to assistant vice provost now. I, I sometimes tell people even now, I'm still just an overgrown RA. <laughs> Don't let the new title fool you. Um, I really found uh, my passion and my purpose very early on, and I was very, very lucky at the age of 19 to discover that I could work with students outside of the classroom to help improve their college experience, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it, and every job that I've had since then has been a different iteration and version of that in some way. So I was fortunate to work uh, as an RA for a couple of years, but then I worked my way up through every single position that there was in housing at the University of North Texas. They have a wonderful program there. Um, and they do a good job also in investing in people's leadership development and professional development. So I was really well prepared by the time that I finished graduate school and had gone through several different roles and positions uh, within campus housing at that point to step into the role of director of residence life at a small private liberal arts institution. Um, and then uh, that job changed every single year that I was there. For the four years that I was there, I became Associate Dean of Students as well as Director of Career Development. <laughs> um, I oversaw the campus judicial processes uh, during that time as well for part of that time. And then in uh, about 20 years ago, I was hired by the University of Cincinnati to open the Center for Exploratory Studies. So that was fantastic. And it gave me my first opportunity to design an advising center uh, from the ground up. And I'm, I'm excited to say that I've had another couple of opportunities to do that uh, here at UC. And so um, I moved from the directorial position uh, of uh, the Center for Exploratory Studies into an assistant dean position for arts and sciences, leading two advising centers. And then from that role, uh, because arts and sciences is our largest college, which is often the case at many large public institutions. Um, 
my time was being utilized so heavily to create things that were being used by the university community that I became provost to liaison halftime. So I was uh, doing a role that I call a 60-60 split <laughs> between the provost's office and the college office, um, supporting advising university-wide, and then eventually uh, began working as uh, the director of advising and academic services and established this office from the ground up. So I'm very pleased to tell you that um, that's been uh, part of the story of advising becoming part of the student success leadership at the University of Cincinnati. And I feel like that's happened in many places. Advising is seen so much as the crossroads of student success. Um, <clears throat> so our office now also includes orientation, uh, transfer credit evaluation, transfer and transition and pre-professional advising, our advising tools and technology. We have several different offices uh, that we um, coordinate under this umbrella and then provide leadership university-wide to coordinate our decentralized advising community of 18 advising centers as well. So it's a lot of fun. Again, at this point in my life, I still just consider myself an overgrown RA, which I'm not sure I'm not sure if my people appreciate hearing that, but at the end of the day, it's all about making sure that we're creating the right environment for our students. No, I just want to, you know, here, no, I, I agree with how housing and res life helps to shape, you know, development. Like when I think about, you know, my time in, in residence education, I think about, you know, um, chickering and Petri dishes and that just being this, wonderful um, opportunity to um, see how students are growing and developing um, in those spaces, which is directly related to the work that we do around student services. And, you know, Leah, hearing your perspective, you know, coming from athletics and and how you've grown and changed and um, moved up organizationally, I think it just really speaks to, which I know a lot of people appreciate, is hearing how things evolved. And the one thing that we hear all the time is that a a job could have a different title on any campus, right? Uh, but at the core of the work in terms of what you do, it was just wonderful for you to be able to share how you've evolved in your respective roles. Um, and so, you know, I've got the second question. So kind of speaking on that um, perspective, right, of how you've grown in your roles and 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 how um, you have come to be uh, in higher education um, as a profession and how you see yourselves as leaders. Um, our question is, is, what is your role specifically? But then also, how have you seen academic advising change or shift since the pandemic? So I always think it's really interesting to hear how you're currently operating. So like, yes, how I've grown up in higher education and, and how I'm currently realizing the way that I'm working. But, you know, within your respective roles right now, what, how can you, you know, what description, right, would you give somebody to briefly talk about what you're doing? But then how has the pandemic shifted and changed the way that you're currently operating? And we'll, uh, yeah, we'll start with Leah and then we'll go to Tara. I realize <laughs> both are like, who do you want to talk first? But yeah, let's just go back to I'll throw a wink in there when I want to go first. I'll throw a wink in there. No, I, so my current role, um, I manage a team of individuals that, um, again, they oversee, they do the day-to-day of all of our student-facing um, programs and support services. So kind of more simplified is our team manages orientation for the college, um, academic advising for the college, graduation for the college. Um, we have a number of other kind of support services, but really what it boils down to 
is looking at the end-to-end experience for the student, right? The entire student life cycle and making sure that at, at every point and juncture of their experience, there is support, there is programming, and there's development that is happening for all of our students. And so um, my job um, as it's continuing to evolve is to make sure that um, we are thinking about one um how we do that, right? How we do our work, um, what our students actually need um, in terms of even the changes um, through the pandemic, right? Um, so a lot of it is lots of conversations. And so you pile all that on with lots of change at our institution, lots of change in our department coming, uh, I won't say coming out of a pandemic, but <laughs> slowing down <laughs> um, with the pandemic. Um, it is a lot, right? So I would say, I think you kind of asked, like, what, what, how would I describe my job? Uh, I, I manage people first, um, support people first, and then I strategize second. Um, is how I look at that. I am a, a people first manager, supervisor, leader. Um, I, I firmly believe that if you don't take care of your people and make sure that they are well and they are good that they are feeling some sense of value and satisfaction in, in what they do. Um, they can't serve our students well. So um, I would describe that part. Um, in terms of how I've seen advising evolve, I mean, I think we all know it, it, it has been evolving for many, many years, but connected to the pandemic, um, I would say a couple of things. So I think the pandemic forced us to become better communicators across many of the other institutions I've worked at, and especially my last couple, um, it has forced us to stay on each other's radar so that our students don't fall through the cracks, so that we know what we're doing, so that we're not in such silos. And I think that is um, one of the good things that have come out of, um, have come out of the pandemic for students. Um, I think that we are seeing increased partnerships uh, across campus. I think, as you all know, our higher education can be very siloed sometimes. And I think it's really forced us to think about, you know, uh, talking with our campus partners in uh, student affairs and academic affairs and enrollment management um, and figuring out, like, what are you seeing, right? Because we have, a, all of us have a different lens by which we do our work. And so talking with student affairs or the career center or enrollment management, like, what are you seeing? What are students asking you uh, as you are, are engaging with them during your process and thinking about how we can better bridge uh, some of the ways in which we support um, our students? Um, and then I would say, I think we are forced to think about access, right? We all talk about access all the time and inclusivity, but I think it has really highlighted some of our weak points in those areas and caused us to really question, like, are we really inclusive, right? Are we really providing access to students? I know in my current institution, we have a, a, a fairly large focus on uh, socioeconomic diversity, right? And what that means when we bring in more students that are lower income or first-gen students, right? And so thinking about how they have access to information, how they understand that information is really important. And I think it's forcing us to take a deeper look at, you know, looking at students who didn't have access to AP credit, right? And what that means for us or looking at students that have to have a job. It's not enough to just throw money at their tuition and give them access to all these grants. We know that 
sometimes our students are sending money home and so they have to work, which means that may impact the number of credit hours they take and all these different kind of dynamics. I think it's forcing us to take a deep dive um, into some of that. Leah, I think I would, um, I want to elevate what Leah said there too, because I agree with everything uh, that you've said, Leah. And I I do think in addition to um, all of those particular changes, one thing that I would add is, is we also have seen more validation of advising over that period of time. There's been some great national research published uh, in the last couple of years that helps reinforce the impact of advising directly in terms of student success and retention, which has been very helpful. Um, but the pressure is the other piece that has really uh, elevated, I think, a lot since the pandemic and the, the double pandemic honestly, really made a big difference in the pressure that advisors were experiencing. And in the same time and space, enrollment pressures um, <clears throat> at every institution have increased, I think, at almost every institution have increased significantly. And whether that enrollment pressure is because the institution feels that they're not enrolling enough students or because we have too many students uh, to be able to make sure that we're meeting their needs very effectively. Those things both have been a real challenge. And that that ties back in in some regards to how um, my role has changed some over time, uh, in addition to starting with a foundation in advising at my current institution and expanding more into student success. It's also further expanded now into um, leadership with College Credit Plus, uh, Cincinnati Public Schools Strong, and some of that is designed to help reinforce and create better access pathways and think about how we restructure and redesign our institutions to be more student-centered and, and focused on the student rather than our own institutional histories, which we know have uh, uh, racialized bases. <laughs> and so we really want to think about how do we do a better job for more students going forward in the future. But all of that means that we've got more and more pressure on advisors as well. Student needs are increasing. Um, Caseloads are obvious, are, um, quite commonly not exactly what they need to be for most of our advisors, uh, but with enrollment pressures being so high, you know, many institutions, I think advisors are feeling like they've um, been given a very different kind of a job than they used to have. So those are all things that we're thinking carefully about. No, definitely. I agree. And so, Tara, if you can just share a little bit about, you know, your role and, and how you've been navigating those those challenges as well, just so people have a brief, you know, um, perspective of what your role is at on the University of Cincinnati. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you asking, Melinda, but it changes every single year. <laughs> so, um, it usually you does. Know, it, it's funny at this point, uh, my actual title is Assistant Vice Provost of Advising Academic Services and Strategic Partnerships. They're thinking about changing it to Advising and Student Success, which has a very unfortunate acronym. So we're thinking about maybe student success and advising as a, as a different focus behind that. But some of that means um, helping us to think about things like if we are serious about student success at the institution, why do deans only have budget hearings every year? Why do we not have student success hearings every year? How might we structure student success hearings so that at a large decentralized university, we're really thinking writ large about all of those different things that we invest in the student and not only monitoring student outcomes data. That's a very important piece of this. 
Um, but most deans don't elevate into the positions that they're in because they're student success experts. And so in many cases, they are very appreciative of that help and that partnership to really understand not only how do we do a great job for advisors and in our advising community. And I'm pleased to say that we've done a very, very good job with our advising quality uh, over time and investments in advising over time at the University of Cincinnati. We still have definite room uh, to improve and do better there uh, in terms of the support that we provide, the, the numbers of advisors we're providing to our students. But how do we think strategically about what gets outcomes for our students? And in many places, that's really rethinking our structures, rethinking our curriculum, looking for choke points in the curriculum, looking for toxic course combinations, trying to identify where does student success coaching appropriately enhance academic advising as part of the broader advising community? How do advisors really need to understand a certain amount of financial aid information? It's really, you know, coming, coming back to that concept of advising as the crossroads of student success and realizing academic advising is not all of student success, but it can serve as a launch pad for many of those other pieces. Right. Well, thank you so much. I really do appreciate both of your perspectives. And, you know, it's one of those moments. And I love the fact, you know, Lee, you were like, as we progress through, like, yes, we're still in a pandemic culture um, environment, you know, still looking for ways to improve upon the things that were highlighted in terms of, you know, definite deficits, but then how do we capitalize on those opportunities? And so, Thank you, Tara, for also bringing in that enrollment management perspective as well. Um, that's a pretty powerful way that we've been driven in terms of thinking through change um, to make sure that from an equity standpoint, right? Uh, and Leah, you mentioned that too, you know, equity became a big issue as we were thinking about, you know, who we were serving and why we were serving them and how to serve them a better. So thank you both for your uh, responses. Yeah. And I really like, Lee, I really liked your response in terms of you support people first and strategize second. I mean, I think that is definitely a great tip for any administrator leader um, to, to have. And then Tara, you were mentioning like there's a lot of that national research that's been published that's you know showing that there is definitely that positive impact that advising has. But you also talked about some of those different types of pressures, including enrollment pressures, pressures on advisors, caseloads, and then connected to that is, you know, burnout. And we hear about well-being a lot now. Um, I mean, that's been around, but now it seems more and more we hear about advisor well-being. And I guess from both of your perspectives, um, what kind of innovative practices, you know, have either your institution has implemented or you've helped implement? Because you have a lot of experience in terms of creating things, building things from the ground up um, that have ensured not only student success, but nowadays also is connected to the well-being and retention of those that you supervise. Um, so Tara, do you want to uh, go first? Sure. So one of the things I'm excited to share with you that I think uh, many people in the Nakata community are aware of, uh, but perhaps not everyone, is that we founded the first Advisors of Color Employee Resource Group at the University of Cincinnati. Um, and I think uh, last I knew we were the first in the country to, to, um, to have that particular type of opportunity for our advisors at the University of Cincinnati. And within that structure, within that support structure for many of our advisors, we've also come to really think carefully about how do we reinforce equity 
across the institution in our advising practices um, and in a way that is both sustainable and accountable. Um, I will also um, give great uh, acknowledgement to Nakata's uh, REI, Race, Ethnicity, and Inclusion uh, work group that was led by Jessica Staten and Loxley Nibs originally. Their work in that inspired, um, our, our institution inspired me personally to establish a task force at the University of Cincinnati, an REI task force that made 17 recommendations for how we could create a more sustainable and accountable advising community. Um, those recommendations actually resulted in uh, pay equity for advisors. I'm pleased to tell you 108 advisors got salary increases this week at the University of Cincinnati because of one of the recommendations of that task force. I was able to hire an assistant director for equity, inclusion, and advancement and advising who will start on Monday. It's the first, it's the only position of that type that we're aware of um, in advising specifically nationally. So we're very excited. I've told him, uh, Marcel Crawford will be our inaugural person in that role. And I've told him he may be freestyling for a little while because we're going to be building it from the ground up. Um, but I think one of the other things that's really important and that I have had the opportunity to do even this week was to advocate with our board and our president and our provost for how much advising deficit we have in terms of the numbers of advisors that we need. We are 30 advisors short of the number of advisors we need at the University of Cincinnati. And I was, be, I was able yesterday to be able to uh, give them the data about how we assess that, uh, what the payoff could potentially be if we, if we do make the investment in our advisors to make sure that advisors have uh, the capacity that they need to be able to do the work that they want to do with their students. And we know advising is teaching. Um, we also know advising is part student affairs and part enrollment. Um, but at the end of the day, advising can't only be about enrollment. That's not going to help our students, right? We need to make sure that the learning outcomes of advising are being accomplished and that the, and that the student's personal support um, is also intact. Advising is all of those things. Uh, but advocating for resources for advising means speaking in terms of return on investment. And so I, part of my job is to tailor uh, some information up and educate up to our administration in that way to make sure that we can do what we need to do across our advising community, both for the sanity and professional lives of our advisors, but then also ultimately at the end of the day for that impact that translates to their students. Tara, you've done a lot of really great things. I probably should have went first this time. <laughs> <laughs> Leah, you've got a lot to offer. No. I'm, so. I'm like, dang. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, I, you know, I actually, um, if it's okay, I would like to speak to the well-being and retention part of academic advisors because that's the piece that is kind of my heartbeat at this moment. Um you know, and I don't necessarily think these are things that are innovative, but I think that they are, if you're if you're going to be a good administrator and a good leader, I think there are things to keep in mind, right? So, I mean, I think about, um, you know, academic advisors are, for all intensive part, they are workhorses. They, they will do all the things all the time, say yes to everything. And I am a firm believer in, 
uh, work-life boundaries. Um, and so one of the things in terms of building a culture of well-being, one, I try to practice what I preach um, to my advisors. And so things like advisors who are asking me, can I work through lunch so that I can leave an hour early or hour and a half early to, to pick up my kid, my kid? No, how about you take your lunch and then you still go pick up your student, your your student, your your child, right? Um, things like making sure that people actually take um, not just in terms of kind of um, not just in terms of to leave early, but take your lunch, take a fifteen minute break, build in big blocks of time for you to process and have the you know the opportunity to think about initiatives and ideas you have to improve um, your advising practice or get involved with things on campus. You know, I've been pushing my team to let me know when you're doing really great things, right? So that you can be recognized. Um, building a culture of what kind of development do you want to get? You know, my current team, they were allowed to do some things, but it was not necessarily something that's been pushed. And I want them to know, like, whatever that development is, let's think about what, what that looks like for you, right? What do you want to be involved in? How do you want to grow? Continuing to always have um, those conversations. I don't want advisors to feel like they have to walk on eggshells to ask for a day off. If you're tired, say you're tired. If you're overworked, let's, if you if you feel like you're overwhelmed with work, let's talk through that and what that looks like, right? Um, so for me, and, and here's another simple one that we probably don't think about. Um, let's not schedule back-to-back Zooms. You know, when you're looking at scheduling something for someone, if you if there's a 30-minute a block and you see someone has something before and after, let's think about what that means for them, right? Um and, and I, I try to not to do that. Let's not send emails past six o'clock at night. And I am very tempted all the time because I am in meetings all day. And the first time I can get to things is at seven or eight o'clock. But my first thought is, what is what is the expectation that I am setting by sending an email at 30 at night for my team? I ask them not to do that ever, <laughs> you know, and if I have to do it, I tell them in advance, don't you open the email. I just, this is the first time I can send it, but it is very, very rare. So I, I just, I want us to start thinking about things like that. And, and I try to encourage my team to also think about that as well. Leah, I think it's important that you said that too, because we set the tone, right? And when we're doing it, <laughs> it's very hard for our people to believe that they have the support to not do it, Right. So I appreciate you sharing that. I think, and that's something that many of us need to remember more often, but we definitely do set the tone. Right. Well, I just, uh, I want to thank both of you for your perspectives, especially around advisor well-being, because I think sometimes people may feel like it's got to be these big overtures or these big gestures, right? But what I'm hearing is that it's in the daily operations. It's in the tone. It's in uh, leadership. It's about the expectations that you're setting that people have lives. And, you know, given uh, the current, you know, work environment or institutional uh, culture that people are in, sometimes you're right, it's this inherent pressure that we tell ourselves, right? So when you're leading folks and you want them to understand that, you know, your life is important to me, right? Not just the work that you happen to do that I'm responsible for within these particular uh, divisions or areas. I think it is very helpful for people to hear that it's not always going to be, oh, guess what? You know, you're going to have a 
$5,000 pay raise, which is awesome sauce, right? So, you know, Tara, kudos to, you know, your um, institution being able to offer that because money is important. I will never sit here and tell anybody that it is not. Um, but it's also, you know, the idea of a work culture and being able to show up and be your best self. And even on those days where you can't be your best self, it's still okay. You know, your work is still valued here, even if you're not hitting the nose to the grindstone from like eight to six thirty. Um, you know, Lee, I'm gonna take your advice on those emails. I'm gonna tell people not to respond to them because I I don't expect people to respond, but you're right, it's about communicating the expectation that I don't expect you to respond because this is when I can get to it. So um Sometimes, you know, in leadership, people assume, right, that their folks know this about you. But I think it's a really strong point that you are also communicating so that people don't have to assume. So, you know, one of our next questions when we think about this conversation around leadership and administration, you know, what are some of the challenges that advisors or uh, even you in leadership still face, you know, as we're navigating not just this this pandemic space, but, you know, how higher education is, is being reframed these days. What are some challenges you think advisors and you still face in terms of leading? I think the, the biggest one that I have come across is seeing people that it is time for them to move up, to be promoted. You see the good work they're doing and trying to get them the experience, or if the current structure of your unit does not allow for a promotion. And that's really hard for me, right? Like I've had a few of these conversations on my team with people who have been doing great work, who've picked up extra work, and they are ready and want to be promoted, but perhaps the structure itself does not allow for that because there's nowhere to promote them to. Um, and so, all, and I don't personally feel good about giving people extra work. Here's some extra work, but we can't give you extra money or, or title, you know, to go along with that more leadership responsibilities. And so I think that is something that I, I, think very, very deeply about. Um, and then I also think thinking about salaries and pay equity is very, very difficult because oftentimes those conversations are way above my head and I can fight all day, but certainly we know that resources are, uh, there are different priorities for resources or priorities are limited or resources are limited. And it's really hard to look someone in the face and tell them like, right now we cannot, like that is the most difficult thing, right? Or to tell someone, oh, you only get a two and a half percent raise when the cost of gas, food and housing has went up 15, 20%, right? Like it, that is probably the most difficult thing that I, I think about frequently and how to get people what they need. Leah, I think that you're exactly right about that. And I, it's one of the reasons that we um, addressed that problem very recently. But I will say that one of the reasons that we got traction with our senior leadership to address that problem is because it was called out um, within our race, ethnicity, and inclusion task force work. Uh, and frankly, there are so many institutions that are really trying to elevate and prioritize that work uh, at this point in time, that that's, that's really how I think that we got the attention to address um, compensation. But your, your point also about promotional opportunities, I think, is really one of the very hard ones. And I completely agree with you on that. 
Uh, our advisors have what I tend to think of as a righteous sense of impatience to do the right thing for our students. Um, but they also feel that way about their careers and their career progression more so than some of us in other generations perhaps have. So uh, it's a little hard to keep up with that once in a while. Um, but the other thing that I would say too, that that's a little bit different for our advisors also really comes back to that pressure that we were talking about earlier. And that's, that's one of the things that for me is hardest to balance because the enrollment pressures with the understanding of how much impact our advisors can have on our students. The everybody wants the advisors to now do everything. So it's wonderful that uh, the institutions now really have begun to understand the real value and importance of advising in ways that we used to have to fight for. They, they, they get it now. They get it a little differently than we've been trying to say it, <laughs> um, but they get it now. It's just that advisors are now being asked to do so many things. And that is just fine if you have enough advisors to do all the work. So I, I would say that that's one of the pieces that from a leadership standpoint, we've got to work really, really hard to try to manage. And some of that is either we have to advocate for the appropriate resources for the advisors to be able to do their jobs, or we have to be able to set some boundaries around the job that we're asking them to do. Because at the end of the day, burning out our advisors um, is not is not the answer to student success either. I just feel like there's so much, like every answer that both of you have given, so such great tidbits uh, that I think listeners, uh, anyone watching this, or when they attend the live session um, in Portland will gain from this. I mean, Leah talking about moving up, but sometimes there's not a structure, you know, there's no career ladder uh, for, for advisors or Tara, you know, the advice of there needs to be balance. Uh, administrators need to advocate, uh, set boundaries. Um, it's a continuing conversation and it's, it's always going to be ongoing. And from your perspectives, what lessons have you as advising administrators, what have you learned about your, yourself uh, through these years and the staff, the advisors that, that you supervise? Um, so Leah, do you want to go first? Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> what have I learned about myself? Hmm. Listen more than you speak. That is a big one. Um, it's okay to ask for help. Um, I personally learned so much from my advisors and the people that I supervise. Um, I think that's really important. Sometimes we can think with a, a title that we have arrived and there's nothing else to learn. Um, and a lot of my, my, my current direct reports have really been insightful um, in terms of just perspective and how to think about things, especially as it relates to my current institution. And it's okay to fail. You know, you're going to have missteps on those missteps, right? I think one of the things I've learned, I've seen it pan out not very well, but also have learned from myself is that people appreciate transparency, authenticity, and authenticity, right? When you mess up, say you mess up. If you can't own that and be honest about that, people won't trust you. So when I misstep and I'm like, hey, I could have did that better. I'm, I apologize for that. I will, I will get it right next time. People do appreciate that. And I think more than anything, whether you're an expert in the area, you're coming up with all these great ideas and initiatives, they appreciate the honesty, the transparency, and the authenticity. I, I would completely agree with that, Leah. And that transparency and authenticity is 
so important to people. Uh, and I also am constantly reminded, um, Simon Sinek talks about the fact that two keys to uh, really effective leadership are um, uh, empathy and perspective. And uh, my my natural sense is to provide that empathy in general anyway, but one of the things that I think is always so important for all of us is to continue developing our perspective um, as we continue to think about how we reshape who, I, who higher education is meant for <laughs> uh, and how we create more access and more opportunity, continuing to develop our perspectives about what our student needs um, and our student populations are and what their what their opportunities are is really important. Thinking about uh, the perspectives of our advisors, sometimes they are very different than the people that are in positions of leadership, but really understanding and valuing those perspectives are really important. And I've also, as much as we've talked about it since the pandemic, uh, learned how much communication, leadership communication really means to our frontline advisors, especially it's interesting how important those words are, how important the validation is, how important it is that some of our frontline people see and hear, ah, we have leadership that gets it because at the end of the day, they want to wake up and show up to do work in places where your leaders get it and where your leaders understand and where, and where it feels like everyone's got a really common goal at the end of the day. Uh, and leaders can't do that very effectively when we sit quietly and choose not to communicate with our people. So I, that's and that's something I have to remind myself because sometimes I think, oh, I'm just in the background supporting all these folks. But every once in a while, they remind me, we need you to say something right now. <laughs> no, those are very strong points. I totally uh, echo and support uh, both of, of what you shared: um, communication, transparency, honesty. You know, Leah the the point of it's okay to fail. I think sometimes people will do everything right to not fail, which sometimes maybe you need to fail in order to learn how to do something better and how to improve upon it, right? But if you never allow yourself uh, the opportunity to do that and the grace, right, um, then there's going to be things that you'll never learn uh, that you could only have learned through particular lessons. And, and you know, Tara, I completely agree, um, you know, with, with your, your statements. Um, I just want to just, you know, I don't know if your staffs tell you thank you, but I know that as a leader, sometimes when you're on the top of that mountain and the wind's whistling in your ears and you're sitting there all alone, you know, it's just really, for me, I feel it's important. I'm just hearing this um, in my heart to just affirm what you're doing for both of your institutions and how you're leading your folks. Um, sometimes people don't recognize how um, lucky is the word that I'll use, but you know how fortunate they are in order to 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 work for such um, wonderful women who are, are leading the way, uh, because they may not understand all the work that you have done in order to keep leading them in that right. You know what I mean? Like sometimes people don't they think that oh well it's just because she knows. It's like oh no I I made a mistake in the future that has made me move differently right now. I mean in the past that's making me move differently right now, or I've read something or I'm, I'm reading the room differently. I'm reading energies differently, whatever that is, right. You know, however you want to show up in that space. Um, so I just want to thank you both for all the work that you you've done and that you're doing and that I know that you'll continue to do. Oh, thank you, Melinda. See, this is why we're all friends, but <laughs> we really appreciate your leadership in this as well. And we're so excited that you're our executive director of Nakata. 
Oh, thank you. And, you know, Matt, as always, I always love hosting with Matt because um, these conversations are so riveting and, you know, over 30,000 downloads, right, Matt? Right, right. Just for... hit over thirty thousand dollars of the podcast. <laughs> right, right. So I could just imagine coming into this annual conference experience and being able to do this on in such an, an amazing format that Matt's been able to provide uh, and to support uh, these conversations to help people grow and to think about how they see themselves in this space because we know it's changing rapidly, right? So who knows what the next five or ten years is going to be. Um, but Matt, you know, do we have time for to ask them that question about the future of advising? I've I've got the time. So as long as uh, Tara and Leah have time to answer it, yes, let, let's keep recording. Yeah, I would love to end uh, this podcast with that question of what do you think the future of advising holds for us? Leah, do anybody you want to go first or do you want me to? <laughs> oh, I love it. It was like, who goes, who's on first? You know, it's funny as I was looking at this question before. I'm actually, I'm trying to think how far ahead do I jump in terms of what I see. I, th I think if we if we step just immediately forward, one of the things that I think is really, really clear, obviously, is uh, the ability to do remote advising from, from just about anywhere. It works. Uh, we, you know, we most of us have not gotten into a comfort zone of saying, well, all advising should be remote, right? We've, we've not really done that. And, and in part, that's uh, as a means of keeping our, our teams strong and healthy is to have that opportunity to be together in addition to serving and supporting our students in remote formats. But students like remote advising. I, I know our perception of quality of advising actually went up when we went fully remote during the pandemic. Our no-shows dropped. I think we're seeing that in a lot of different places um, even though about 40% of our students still say that they'd like in-person advising, we find that at the last minute they flip those to remote because it's easier, it's too cold outside, or I'm still in my pajamas, or it's just more convenient to access that way. And I think that we learned that um, whereas students did not necessarily value group interactions online in classes and so forth, they, they have valued one-on-one -on -one interactions online. So what that creates then is a very, very different opportunity for advisors to um, actually be marketable globally. Uh, it's not just on your campus. It's not just in your region. And how that actually can impact the future of work for advising has all kinds of different implications. I'm, I'm actually wondering if 10 years from now we're going to see advisors as nearly free agents um, you know, we've got a we've got a very different kind of a, a gig economy going on in, in other arenas. And it's very hard for, to imagine higher ed going there. But if there's a way for that to become a good thing for advisors, I'd be willing to bet that they'll figure out a way to do it. <laughs> I really don't know if we'll go there or not, but it's really an interesting thing to think about. It's not something I would necessarily recommend because I like that advisor connection and relationship and insight and understanding with their faculty and the curriculum and the institution. Um, but it's going to be interesting truly to see how all of this moves. So I have big dreams, sort of. Um, so one of the things I would love to see continue to grow are positions like Tara's that are senior administrative positions that get to sit at the table, that get to be in the era of the chancellor. I think those, I think that those positions are so important and we're starting to see more of them, but I think 
having someone, especially someone who comes from kind of that advising background and understands and can really be a great translator of the day-to-day that advisors and advising administrators up to cabinet, I think it's so important, right? The role of advisors and advising administrators and and our students are evolving I think it is so important to have someone that understands that day-to-day, that understands the evolution of our students in in the way that advising impacts that and student success that could translate that up, right? Because I think that's, you know, I went to the advising, um, the Administrators Institute this past year, and so many of the challenges that we heard was that the people at the top, senior leadership, they don't understand the impact of some of the decisions And I think having positions like Tara's, I think, is going to kind of mitigate some of that frustration for those of us that are kind of in the day to day and helping to lead advising charges on our campuses. Um, And so another wish list item um, for me is that we would actually have um, an advising mental health counselor that is embedded in all of our. Now, that is a huge wish list, right? Like, I understand that. But I think our advisors need it. I think they're caring a lot. And I think our students need it, right? And I think having someone that's actually embedded into each of our advising units to help us think through and process some of the things that we are carrying, whether it's from our own work or our students, I, I think that is going to be clutch um, as our students continue to evolve. No, thank you so much. I mean, what I'm hearing in terms of themes are flexibility, Right. And then shifting the way that people are thinking about our work in terms of modality, because as the world continues to get smaller, right, when we start even thinking about, you know, technology, how it's enhanced and improved, and then culturally, right, how we've all shifted. I mean, I can't tell you how many Zoom meetings I was on before the pandemic, and now I feel like that is my life, right? And so the fact that we can move and shift and um, operate differently. Um, but I think the challenge is always going to be historically higher education has always done it like this, but we know that we can move differently. We know that we can move faster. We know that we have um, the ability to transition in a way that we continue to still um, have the outcome of quality and support that we know our students need. Um, and, and Lee, you're absolutely right. The mental health perspective, right? That Sometimes, you know, people overlooked it, but now you can't, right? So if there's any beauty that's coming out of this dynamic of of pandemic um, culture, it is that mental health is important, just like your physical health. And so how are we thinking about creating new systems or creating new traditions in higher education where that's embedded in these spaces um, so that we are not just um, uh, uh, treating things when they come um desperate for people, right? But that we are building a culture in which we are helping people think through how their mental health shows up and how it shapes the way that they work. And not just for our students, right? Cobbler kids have no shoes kind of thing, but for us as well. Um, And so thank you for speaking on that. I really appreciate that. Appreciate you both being on this panel uh, for this recording. And then we look forward to seeing you in Portland. Thank you for sharing your expertise. And, And Lee, like you were talking about, the honesty part. Thank you both for your honesty with all of this. And thank you so much for being on. Thanks for having us. See you, you all in Portland. <laughs> Absolutely. And I um, match my uh, co-host sentiments. Thank you for 
being you. Thank you for your transparency and, and honesty and your integrity in the work that you're trying to accomplish at your respective institutions. And yes, see you in Portland, Oregon. I know Matt's got the countdown, so we're going to be rocking and rolling. So thank you so much. We will. And Matt, thank you for making more of these conversations amongst Nakata colleagues accessible to so many people. We appreciate your leadership work on that for the association. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tara, Leah, Nicole, and Kevin for taking time to do both the recording and also to do the live panel at the Portland Conference. And of course, Melinda Anderson, thank you for being there to host the panel with me and to do this recording. Always a pleasure having you here. And what do you know? We've reached the end and episode 70 is now in the books. We're on the road to 75 episodes. So check back for episode 71. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media at Advising Podcast. Take care. And of course, keep advising. Oh.